0: It's easy to hear your favorite artist on WFPK from wherever you are. Listen on your smart speaker, live stream from our website at wfpk.org from Louisville Public Media.
1: I'm 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 wearing clothes, yeah. It's fine.
0: Consequence Podcast Network. welcome to another edition of kyle meredith with it's the interview series presented by wfpk at wfpk.org consequence and the consequence podcast network Thanks as always for making your way here and checking out the series. Ah, please do please do hit that subscribe button. If you like what you see, what you hear, I'll give you three brand new interviews every single week. It's a new one every Monday, Wednesday, and Friday to keep you up to date on your favorite artists. And discover some new ones at iTunes and Apple Podcasts, at Spotify and Podchaser, NPR, WFPK.org, YouTube for the video versions, or again, anywhere you get your podcast from. Subscribe to Kyle Meredith with. And that's me, Kyle Mayer, today get to catch up with Ben Gibbard of Death Cab for Cutie. They've got a new album, Asphalt Meadows. In fact, it's the 10th album from the band. Uh, So we're going to talk about, he's going to tell us uh, about making the record in this really interesting assembly line style, Uh, the anxiety attacks that play throughout the lyrics, and taking stock of his past. Uh, We also get to hear about channeling Slint on one of the tracks and working with Noah Cyrus recently on her latest album. And it's then that we turn the attention to the upcoming reunion of the Postal Service. If you're listening to this episode, you've probably no doubts heard that uh, later on in 2023, uh, Ben is going to be doing double duty on the stage, celebrating the one album from the Postal Service in full, as well as Death Cab for Cutie's Transatlanticism. On stage all nights, that's him, both albums back to back. Uh, So we're going to hear about that and uh, hear about the indie rock movement of the early 2000s, how making only one album with uh, Jimmy Tamborello led to the band, and, and really the LP's legacy and mythology, and the way his writing and recording has changed since that era as well. So it's all that's and a whole lot of attention on Asphalt Meadows. It's Kyle Meredith with Death Cap for Cutie's Benjamin Gibbard. Hey, how's it going? It's great to see you. And um, let me just say, first off, congratulations on this record. I am i instantly love it. Um, it's never happened that there's been any album that you put out that I haven't loved, so that's a good (laughs) good run that you're still on.
1: Well, that's good. I mean, you know, it's at 10 records in, there's bound to be some ones that people love, slash like, slash are indifferent about all the way to hate. So Uh, that's, that's, that's a good response. I appreciate that.
0: Is, is, is there a death cab album that people hate? Like, you know, ranking sure like more than others, but I don't yeah. think I've ever heard that one. I don't I was like, Oh, I hate that record.
1: Well, I just put it this way. I, I, I don't, I don't see, thankfully I, I tend to not see a lot of our albums in the used bins, uh, which makes me think that either they exist there for a short period of time and then people scoop them up or, uh, or there is not a universally agreed upon worst record, you know. I mean, I wouldn't put that to a vote. I'm sure if Reddit, and I'm sure if I'm sure the Death Cat Reddit might have some feelings on that, but uh, there there doesn't seem to be one at least that you know is is like everybody's agreed in mass as a piece of crap. So that's we got that going for us, which is nice.
0: Although I'll, I'll take up for the use Ben a little bit as someone who still likes you know diving in. Um, I always found that most of it is just the albums that too many people had you know you you had the, yeah. the the album that everybody had so of course you're gonna see that stuff in there like you know for a dollar or whatever which doesn't make it a bad album it's just yeah i don't know i don't know how to got it everybody gets sick of it at some point you know well it's... i
1: mean uh, you know i i was i was in a few record stores yesterday and i saw records in the uh new used arrivals that were far better than anything that we've ever made or i've ever been a part of you <laughs> know when you see like Zeppelin and Beatles and Smiths records and whatever else in there it's like you know you're, it's the used bin is is not a uh, it's not an indication of of it, it being bad music it might just be what you said either people have heard it enough or there's a new version of uh you know the the Led Zeppelin catalog let's say is getting reissued again and and people want to buy those uh, i do find it interesting though when somebody seems to have broken up with an artist and you see that breakup in the used bin like, let's just say, let's just pick a random band that, uh, let's say, like, you go to a record store and you see five Wonder Stuff records, like, in the used band. It's like, what happened here? You know, I mean, did I have to look up online and see if, like, did the singer of the Wonder Stuff say some crazy right wing? uh nonsense or whatever or did he say some racist stuff or something i'm not aware of it. i was like no nope. somebody just decided they were done with the wonder stuff for whatever reason and mm-hmm. they didn't need these records anymore and now they're now they're available for me to purchase
0: i've had that same thought especially when i find like uh like singles you know because we, we used to buy singles especially you know cd singles and everything when you start seeing those in there in group i feel the same way it's like you were a big enough fan that you you bought the singles you know you wanted the b-sides
1: yeah like, I think that makes a little more sense to me though because now that those things are available digitally virtually everywhere uh and a CD for example a CD single if we're staying on that topic uh seems like a thoroughly unnecessary thing to hold on to. They they they've they haven't accrued value over time at least not to my knowledge. Uh they're not particularly rare or collectible so that that makes a little more sense to me.
0: Um, my wife would agree with you over my shoulder is way too many CDs that she probably would like for me to uh (laughs) some of them that's taken up the space um I'll say this and we'll get into this record too um if I were lucky enough to find death cab singles because not you know there's stuff like you put uh, there was a live EP I remember coming out like 03 04 that I don't think's being pressed up right like there's a few of those treasures like oh if I could find that again you know in the used bin like that's jackpot day right there
1: uh yeah i'm not sure I, I to continue on the cd thing i'm not i'm really unsure as to how collectible cds are in general uh so even like what might be seen as a rare cd there are probably at least ten thousand copies of it in the world you know but uh but happy hunting i don't i don't know if i even have that one so
0: <laughs> well let's talk asphalt meadows um again it's a great album. so you all have told the story a little bit about this uh, I think you've said assembly line sort of way that you put together put it together, which is really kind of fascinating to me. like I, I've heard of different ways to make an album and and maybe it's just the way you're wording this, but i don't I don't think I've heard it this way too many times. um just to kind of set up this this album and how it was put together. could, could you talk about how you all made it in that fashion?
1: Yeah. so you know roughly half or a little more than half are songs that kind of started from a, a traditional uh mo which is like me in this room working on music and sending demos to the guys um but early in the pandemic i was starting to hit a little bit of a creative wall and because we had no reason to not try something new uh i suggested to the guys that we do uh we attempt this songwriting kind of chain letter of sorts where you know five days in a work week five members of the band and we would choose a random order of the five of us that wouldn't necessarily start with me as the songwriter uh creating a piece of music so let's say on monday dave writes a thing on guitar and you know puts it on a click track or drum machine or whatever uploads it to a dropbox the next day nick would put it down add bass to it put it back up wednesday maybe i pull it down add lyrics melody maybe some guitar uh so on and so forth till friday when we everybody had contributed and we had a song um And the rules were that you only had 24 hours to turn around what you were working on, so there was a deadline. And also, you had complete editorial control while you had the music. So if you didn't like something the person had done the day before, it's gone. Just get rid of it. Um, So we kind of immediately had success with this MO. And I think one of the reasons that we did was that, for me as a songwriter, it took me out of my harmonic and kind of melodic. Uh, tropes you know if I if, when I'm sitting with an instrument and I'm playing guitar or something my hands are going to similar places on the instrument that's going to probably dictate how I sing and what I sing about but if Zach sends in a piece on piano that has a key change for the chorus or something like that that wouldn't necessarily be something that I would do um, at least not subconsciously so it allowed us to kind of just get out of to re, to be reacting musically rather than Trying to assert oneself. And then also, uh, because we were kind of stacking these songs, you know, at least stacking the arrangement and not even in a traditional order, it meant that, you know, if you were on Wednesday and somebody had added keyboards and drums and you were the bass player, okay, well, then you have to, you're Nick, you have to find how to fit into what already exists. And then on Thursday, if I'm going, let's say, I have to react to what already exists on the track. So it was an, it, I felt it worked really well from a from, from an arrangement perspective because whomever's day it was was reacting to whatever was building the song at that moment and trying to add to it while not taking up too much space. because I think sometimes when you're in a room with people and everybody's got their amps up all the way, and you're trying to find what you're playing on a song, it can be incredibly wrought and like and kind of anxiety inducing. And then, or if you're in the studio and the clock is ticking, money is being spent and you're sitting in a corner trying to figure out where you're going to play on guitar or keyboard or whatever, that's also kind of anxiety inducing. So everybody had a day just to sit with a song and kind of try to find their place in it, which was really helpful.
0: So at this point, you know, when everybody's getting, are your, do you have like scratch vocals already on it? Because what I'm wondering is, is how possibly the lyrics start to affect what they're coming up with as well.
1: It just depended on what day of the week I was going. So sometimes it would be Friday and I'd have like basically a, the complete song that I was just putting words and melody to. Sometimes it would be on a Tuesday and like Nick had gone before me. So I'm just reacting to like a baseline. So, but the rule was, as I, as I stated, you you have to complete something. You have to turn in something that's done. Uh, you know, oftentimes there would be some editing after the fact, but the point was to kind of just present a full thought on it on a deadline rather than you know what i normally do is just sit in this room and kind of oh if i'm not feeling it i'll go out get some lunch and ah, actually i want to go to a record store or, i'm going to call this guy see if he wants to get coffee it, it was like no Wednesday's my day i have to spend the day in the studio i have to produce on that day
0: and we'll be right back right after this shout out to uh, astapro for sponsoring this episode and providing us with free samples Uh, I I live in Kentucky, in the Midwest, and allergies, yeah, I suffer. When I say I suffer from allergies, I suffer from allergies. And around here, everyone I know deals with allergies to some degree. And for a long time, I thought it was just something that I would have to live with, which is a real problem um, for anything, but especially when you're a radio host. It affects my voice. It affects my mood. It affects everything. And I feel like I've tried, every, I've tried all the medicines. Some of them work better than others, but there's, there's never a perfect one out there, especially because some of them take forever to actually work and some of them don't work at all. And then there's Astapro, the fastest solution to nasal allergy symptoms. Welcome back. It's Kyle Meredith with Ben Gibbard of Death Cab for Cutie. And let me say, you know, when I first get into it, those first two songs, I'm not saying like you're always known for like happy-go-lucky songs, um, you know, one way or the other. But it doesn't seem like we, we open in a very happy place w- with this album. I don't know. Do you, Do you hear it like that? And if so, how does that set up? A, and I guess what we're also talking about is when you sequence the record, you know, does it tell a story in
1: that way for you? Well, for me, I I wanted to start the record with, I don't know how I survived. I kind of felt after I wrote that song and that was a song that was kind of just, uh, that wasn't a, that wasn't a uh, a chain letter song. The first two are not. Um, I, I, the first thing I wanted when I, we talked about the song and also dealing with John is like, I wanted those first, that first big wall of guitars to kind of feel like you were being punched in the face. So you were kind of felt as if you were settling into kind of a traditional kind of death cab groove of sorts. And then. You, you know, something came out of left field. Um, but I felt it kind of sets the record up lyrically well because it's a song about, you know, just you know, anxiety attacks in the middle of the night during a global pandemic, you know, where it's just this idea of like what is happening? Uh, and, you know, just getting through sometimes I think when you're somebody's in crisis, just getting through the through the night is 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 a huge deal. and I, i've I found that in my own life. I'm sure a lot of people, listening or watching would probably feel the same way. It's, it's not the days that are difficult for me. It's the night. It's like, it's when the voices in your head start going and you can't quiet them down though. Though that's, that's a difficult time for me. And I'm sure a lot of other people as well.
0: And it does uh, punch you in the face when that comes in. It's one of yeah. my favorite moments of the whole record right there. I mean, I love hearing you guys do that kind of sound.
1: I, we love it too. And I think after being indoors for the most part for a couple of years, or at least not being able to get in a room and crank up the amps, uh, more so because we live in four different cities and, you know, we were being very careful about maybe, maybe at this time, maybe looking back, maybe a little overly cautious. But, you know, we we had we were doing the best we could with the information we had uh, overly cautious about not congregating and working on music. It just was, you know, nobody wanted to hop on a plane. People had kids in school. It was like everything seemed like a vector at that point, you know. And I think after a couple of years of not being able to get in a room and make loud noises, the last thing I wanted to do was to make a record that was like soft, introspective sounds about isolation. You know, you want to get in a room and crank up the amps and like make it, you know, make some noise.
0: Maybe it makes sense then because, you know, once we were all there, once we were all isolated, you couldn't do anything. And if you can't do anything, there's nothing to much to write about in the present. So I, I do sense that a lot of artists sort of turned around and looked further back than they might have and I don't know if I'm if that's the way I'm hearing it, but I do hear those moments on this record that I wondered if if you found yourself doing that. Even in things like <clears throat> Rand McNally, you know, th- I mean that's I don't know if that's an actual specific spot in your life, but that's definitely looking to something further in the past. I mean, is this an album that's sort of escaping the present back to the past? I
1: think it's not to kind of have a cop out answer, but I think it's kind of both. I mean, I th- I think as I'm, you know, I'm 46 years old now, you know very much in the in the middle of middle age, you know, and um, I think that I think that as you crest 40 and kind of enter your 40s, I think a lot of people that I know, at least and myself included, are both grappling with the choices that we made that got us to where we are in our lives now and also looking towards the future and kind of wondering what the back nine of our life is going to look like if if we're so lucky to have you know, to be at 40, 40-ish and have lived half your life, you know, I mean, that's still you pretty old. So I think that for me, I, I, I want to make, be conscious of not, I, I don't want the, I don't want an entire record or entire kind of theme of a record to be looking backwards, but I do think it's important to do so in order to kind of give oneself perspective on where they are now. And in that particular song that I've kind of described that song as kind of like, that's like a torch song for everybody who used to be in this band, who toured with this band, who was around in, you know, the early days of, 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 of this band. And for me, the, the, the core message of the song is that like, you know, I'm not going to let the light fade. I'm not going to let all the work that we did be for not, you know I mean? This is, you know, while people have left this band over the years for a number of reasons or been kicked out <laughs> um, it wasn't, it wasn't for not, it wasn't for a lack of contributing and for, and for lack of being an important force in my life, you know? So to me, that's a song that is kind of wants to address just kind of the silliness and, but also the romance of, of living in those lean years of a band when you're crashing on people's floors and you're making meals out of like whatever's left, you know, on the rider backstage, which tends to be just some liquor candy and maybe a, bag of chips and salsa you know i mean i don't know i'm sure anybody who's ever been in a band and been on tour who's listening to this would has gone backstage and found like a case of beer and a bag of chips and salsa you know and that that being the extent of the food you know so but 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 those are important you know those are important kind of uh eras to move through uh in one's life um and also just they're important eras to me as as they relate to the band
0: well whether you intend to or not Uh, a song like that like you now have enough uh, music enough albums I mean we're talking about 10 albums here which like should be its own congratulations by the way like you've hit 10 albums but when you have this much music for fans again and I'm saying whether you intend to or not we have these little moments where it does seem like easter eggs you know Um, I'm gonna stretch on one of them but we talk about Rand McNally and I start thinking about uh, your line about uh, getting to travel just by folding a map you know and and then I mean, the word asphalt is in the district sleep, you know that's that's in the first song of of give up
1: like those little do you catch those when they happen? Yeah, I do and i I you know i'm not i'm I'm not unaware of 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 you know how which words kind of weave through the catalog and which and you know i'm I'm very aware of that, but I also think that songwriting is a vocabulary. And there's there are descriptive words, and and you know physical entities that are important to telling a story, and sometimes they're important to telling more than one story. And I think because of in songwriting, there's an economy of language that doesn't exist in uh, you know writing novels or screenplays or maybe sometimes even poetry. I mean, there's you know at least the way I write songs, there's there's a certain amount of space. That I'm putting words into. So, uh, oftentimes there is a there is a descriptor or a word that is required that I might have used before, uh, and it's not it's not for a lack of imagination. I'd like to hope, uh, and maybe I, you know, and maybe I can say slightly defensively, it's more so that yeah, that those asphalt meadows, those words, sound so nice to me you know, they, you know, they're not the same as, you know, cellar door, you know, which was once described as the most beautiful pairing of words in the English language, but asphalt meadows, they're both two syllable words, they have nice vowel sounds to them. And, and the song, it wouldn't be the song wouldn't be the same if it was concrete meadows, you know, it it wouldn't feel the same, it wouldn't sound the same, It wouldn't sing the same. So oftentimes, you know, as a songwriter, you're also kind of leaning into what words sing well. And that's, you know, as I've worked you know, I've been working a little bit here and there with younger artists, kind of writing songs from time to time. And, and you know, that term comes up often with young song- songwriters, like, how does it sing? And it's something I've never considered, but it is a very interesting way to think about why we choose the words we choose. Some words just sound better coming out of a, a, a voice that's singing versus a voice that's, that's speaking.
0: Just recently, by the way, I uh, was talking to one of those songwriters, uh, Noah Cyrus, I had her on the on here. And man, when you get me and her together, I mean, we're two big uh, Death Cab geeks, so that's uh, that was a fun conversation.
1: <laughs> she's she's wonderful, and I, I she made a really fantastic record, and I'm I'm really proud of been a small part of it. I'm I'm you know there are these there's these moments where I get to spend with some younger artists such as Noah, and I realize you know the kids are all right, they've got it. When we when we when we shuffle off, you know they they are they're more than able to kind of pick up the mantle.
0: Well, it also like. I love the dynamics of what you can pull off, like an album that you've done with Noah and and then you get something like Foxglove on here that reminds me of slents you know on the, on this new record like that's what a what a that's a good balance of songwriting.
1: yeah, I think when I was working on well I know when I was working on um uh Foxglove, I was up in my studio where I am now, and my wife's studio is below me, and you know she hears the music come out of the speakers and hears me you know the the kind of muted tone of me singing or speaking or whatever. And I came downstairs and she's like, What are you working on a slint song up there? And I'm like, kinda, yeah, kinda.
0: <laughs> You're gonna be in Louisville here in a few weeks. And I do hope you play that one because yeah.
1: Oh, of course. Yeah, yeah. absolutely. We we how could we not? How could we not play it in Louisville?
0: Do a set up And then if you could just scream, you know, out Captain right at the end, that would be
1: yeah. You know, it's... <laughs> it's interesting. I I mean that record is I mean uh Spider Land specifically is like a really formative record for me and a lot of people, of my generation and um yeah so naturally there would be at some point its influence would kind of cut through
0: and we'll be right back right after this hi this is james mercer from the shins this
1: is shirley manson this is low tourist of the cure this is huey lewis giving you the story behind the song the story behind the song is back with an exciting second season we peel back the layers on music's most iconic hits with legendary artists like the killers heart the b-52s violent femmes jewel huey lewis modern english and more Keep the music flowing. We'll be sprinkling in classic episodes from our archives between each new one. So check out the story behind the song wherever you get your podcast.
0: Welcome back. It's Kyle Meredith with Ben Gibbard of Death Cab for Cutie. Um, with everything that's going on, of course, now we've got more news out of your camp that later on next year, you're going to be spinning it a little bit in the past as, as, as you've, uh, you know, headlined now that you're going to be performing the Postal Service and Death Cab's Transatlanticism, which top three favorite album of all time for me um, at the same time. Is this something you're already looking ahead? Because, you know, we're all like, dude, you're going to be like, sure, Springsteen's up there for three hours, but is you're going to be up there for a
1: while, right? Well, I'll say two things on it um, and why people should not be concerned for me. Uh, number one... Uh, the total runtime of this show will be comparable, if not less than how long death cab is currently playing. So, you know, death cab tends to play between 22 and 25 songs a night. Uh, you know, give up is 10 songs. Translanticism is 11. You know, it's, it's not as if, it's not as if I'm doing more work, so to speak. And, you know, the plan is to play the records in order in their entirety. just for clarity, because I I feel the the celebrating the anniversary of record tour has has been everything from we play the record in its order to oh it's just a tour where you're playing four or five songs from the record amongst other songs. So that needs to be that point is being made very clear. Secondly, I'm an ultra runner, man. Like I I mean it's you know I, endurance is not a problem for me. So you know uh, so I, I'm not super concerned about. I've had some friends be like, you're going to be exhausted. I'm like, you don't have any idea. I, 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 it's going to take a lot more than this to make me tired. So which band takes top billing in, in this scenario? Like, do you get to choose that? Well, it made sense for uh Pulse Service to play last as much because it's been 10 years since Postal Service did any shows. And secondly, you know, it's, it's more of an, it's more of a, it's like a dance record or at least a lot of it is right. So it would seem a little anticlimactic to go from playing "Give Up" uh, and then going into, you know, Transatlanticism, which is obviously is a record that we love and that people seem to really love too. Uh, but you know, it has a lot of down moments in it, so uh, I, you know, it just made sense that this would be the order that things would go.
0: I'm gonna I'm gonna take the moment here to to stay in that area for a second. Does anything jump out at you when you when you consider 2003 and what was going on and 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 where you were in your life with these two albums like artistically speaking?
1: Yeah, I mean the you know 2001 into 2002 culminating in 2003 with the release of these records is without a doubt the most creatively prolific period of my career. And you know since then I've gone on to write a lot of songs for a particular record. I mean, there were 90 songs that got written for Asphalt Meadows and I you know, I worked with other people and did some guest spots and co-wrote and this, these kind of things. But from a purely output versus impact perspective, I mean, 2003 was an unbelievably prolific year for me in releasing both these records, also a solo EP uh, with my friend Andrew Kenny, a split EP but also just that the response of these records when they came out um, these records. And I, I hope I feel I hope it's, I hope my speaking about it in this way does not come off uh, as self aggrandizing. Um, I think the 20 years since then, you know, I think will kind of mute, mute anybody, hopefully feeling that I'm, I'm speaking in that manner, but these records that were just released because Death Cab, it was time for Death Cab to make another record, and I had met Jimmy Tamborello and we had worked on a song together that we enjoyed and wanted to make more of it. You know, at the time these records were just going to be like, okay, next death Cab record, cool. It'll probably sell around fifty or sixty thousand copies. That's what the last one did. I think the pulse service record, the you know the sales kind of expectations for give up based on Jimmy and I's other output was like, yeah, we'll we'll get we'll be prepared to sell about fifteen or twenty thousand copies of these this this record, and the post service record just took on a, a complete life of its own because we weren't really promoting it or touring or anything, and of course Sub Pop was working the record. I want to be very clear about that, uh, and you know Death Cab got swept up in this larger kind of cultural phenomenon around what indie rock was becoming in the mainstream, so it it just was this like weird snowflake of a moment in not only my life but in just indie rock culture in general where this music that had been for all intents and purposes underground music became if not mainstream certainly larger than it had ever been in kind of the cultural context of what you know what this music we ever thought this music could accomplish in popular culture I mean you know the the biggest venue that I would go to see an independent band in, in 1999 was like the show box. And that's like 1200 people and be like, wow, Yola tango is huge. They're playing the (laughs) show box. They're the biggest band in the world. Right. So um, I, I speak, you know, there's a quote by William Gibson that I'm going to kind of botch here, but it basically says something along the lines of, I think about my books as my children who left home and got into interesting adventures. Mm. And that's kind of how I feel about these records. Like, yes, I, I had a large part in making them. I am the voice on both of them. But these records left the womb, so to speak, and they became these not only cultural signifiers, but also they became part of the mosaic of people's lives in a way that my favorite records did and continue to do for me. So to speak about these records as if, and what they've meant to people is not to pat myself on the back. It's more just to kind of stand back in awe of what music can mean in people's lives. And to take it a step further, that I was in some part, the author of those moments in some people's lives is incredibly humbling thing. And I wanted to do, I wanted to do this tour, not so much to like stand on stage and like, you know, congratulate myself, but more so to give people what will assuredly be the last time and one last opportunity to see the postal service if they hadn't seen it, and to also uh, honor what these records have meant in the lives of the people who have been, uh, I wouldn't say changed, but certainly been affected by them. Uh, you know, is it nice? Is it? Does it feel good this, to see that the tickets are flying off the, you know, virtual shelves? Yeah, totally. That's awesome. Yeah. Um, but you know this isn't something that was you know this wasn't something that was uh you know kind of concocted out of a desire for financial gain it was you know you know that will surely be part of it but you know the work the reason we're doing this work and we were doing these shows is because we want to honor the connection that people have to these records that have meant so much to us in our career and our own lives
0: yeah and both of them are absolute classics both those records although you know the difference is, is that of course transatlanticism is now part of a catalog, and Give Up has always stood on its own. And now those questions have been there throughout the years. You know, will there, would there ever have been one? And there wasn't. Do you think that because there wasn't any more postal service has 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 led to the legacy? Uh, you know, in that sort of way, like you, you can't get any more.
1: This is what you get. Oh, assuredly, and I can kind of speak about it away from my own work. I mean, think about. Airplane Over the Sea by Jersey Milk Hotel. I mean, this record comes out in 1998. Uh, You know, it makes waves amongst a, you know, relatively small community of indie rock connoisseurs. And then over the next 25 years or so, you hear people who you never would think would know anything about the King of Carrot Flowers talking about that song or O Comely. it, It became, it was one of those records that, and I'm, you know i'm not trying to make a direct parallel with give up of course but it was one of those records that was so good and it was such a transcendent creative expression that it just kind of took on a life of its own and 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 found people who necessarily wouldn't even know about elephant six right um and i think that because like give up there hasn't been a follow-up it's allowed uh, Jeff Mangum and Neutral Milk Hotel as an entity to remain this kind of kind of like mythic it's given it a mythic quality and it's, it's it's shrouded in mystery you know why hasn't there been another record what's he doing right now is he i heard from a friend who knows somebody who knows him he was working on something he was at a studio it takes on this like uh this air of mystery and and, and romance you know um and there's certainly just less of that with the Postal Service, but I'm sure there are people out there who are like, they get a little whisper of something and they go like, oh, you know, somebody texted somebody who said that Jimmy and Ben were having coffee, that must mean, you know, whatever it might be. So uh, it's kind of fun to be a part of that in my own life, because you realize that so much of the mystery that sur- surrounds, I know, I know Neutral Milk Hotel is not a one and done, but for all intents and purposes, let's just kind of call it a one and done you know, or the laws or whatever kind of group that had one record and just disappeared. It's, it's really interesting, at least in our case, to be a part of the other side of that and realize like, yeah, no, we just didn't want to do it again. <laughs> no, or yeah, we tried and it just wasn't that much fun. So we decided to yeah, why, why do another one?
0: Right. Because that, that's gotta be a part of it. Like if we, if we don't do it, it can, it can live bigger, like to keep that in your head. Like, I love that. I do. I love that That's part of it. At least a little bit.
1: I mean, who wants, I mean, like ask I mean, anybody who's been wanting a second pulse service record like really ask yourself after 20 years do you really think <laughs> that there's going to be something that we could make that could even uh you know satisfy half of the desire you have in your mind as to what this record would be like a lot of tech 20 years a lot of technology has changed you know a lot of a lot of how we make music has changed dramatically since then it wouldn't be the same and uh I think often when we think about the music that we love the most and the eras of a certain artist or a band that we love the most, we're as much, we're as much kind of thinking about the sound of the, it's not just the songs. It's just not how you remember how you were driving around in high school, listening to it, wishing you could be anywhere else than the town you're living in. It's the sound of it and whatever we would make now would sound dramatically different than, than, than what we made 20 years ago. And I think that it would be a disappointment, even if we tried <laughs>
0: I was, um, you know, for the longest time, because you also a year later, right around that time or whatever, did the uh, the song with Styrofoam, the uh, couches and alleys. It's like I was thought, like, well, there's a little bit something there. Like there, there were little breadcrumbs afterwards, anything, a
1: little things here and there. I did a song with Chong the Nomad. I did a, yeah, I did a song with, you know, um, I've done some strong songs with other electronic, you know, artists. So it's kind of like, you know, yeah, I mean, I'm always dipping my toe in that water a bit. Um, but uh, yeah, I think, I think at this point, you know. 46 years old i think it was pretty a, a pretty wild kind of um uh exercise in hubris at 25 or whatever it was 24 25 26 um to be like yeah i can make two records at the same time why not uh i mean that 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 that's just like the arrogance of youth thinking like yeah why not i can do, totally do this and they'll both be great so who cares? who gives a shit you know um sorry, i'm not supposed to swear but you, you know, can you <laughs> can swear
0: all you want okay, I, I, okay, great yeah I, I will say though that uh, now that we now that we have 20 years to so look at that and and to hear certain things like now we can swim any day in november like i kind of remember the year when that became true more so than it was yeah. in the past. it felt that you know and and those little moments like i can't wait to go gray you know it's like oh man what does that sound like now that you're seeing <laughs> you
1: yeah. know? well it's like i mean ask pete townsend what it's like to be or roger sure. what it's like to be saying hope oh, i die before i get old right i mean there's and, you know, I mean, as far as the as far as far swimming in November, that would be great, but the West is on fire until December every year now. So it's, you know, it's not it's so you can't swim outside, it's you just can't even be outside. But I think that's also kind of one of the beauties about aging with the music that, that you love and that we make um, is that there was a time when rock and roll was thought to be a young person's game. And that, you know, I mean, I'm speaking about in the 60s, the 50s, you know, I mean, this was like, no one there was no thought that that you could play for a lot, for all intents and purposes rock and roll past 25 that it, past 25 it would be silly to be strapping on the guitar and, and windmilling around right but as the art form has aged and become refined in some ways and then then become unrefined and then stripped back down to its essentials and then built back up again there's always this kind of uh you know this things get more complicated and more like and and more orchestrated then they get stripped down to just like guitar and vote you know it gets punk like there's these punk motions movements that happen every 10 or 15 years you know i think that it's you know rock and roll has just become a part of the cultural fabric of living in the world and certainly living in the western world and the idea that you wrote something at 25 that you don't believe at 46 or that might represent you in a way that you couldn't have seen coming. It's just, I, I think that, I think that as, as someone who's singing songs that I wrote when I was 20 uh, about subjects and people that I know I don't even remotely feel the same way about anymore is, is kind of, it's, it's, a it's like, it's kind of like opening up your diary or your high school photos to people in front of in in front of a crowd, you know you're 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 reading a diary from a less emotionally kind of uh, mature part of yourself. and I think that the audiences appreciate that. they appreciate that you're when you don't try to, when an artist hasn't tried to kind of gloss over the person they used to be
0: I mean, it's really one of the only art forms that you're kind of held to that, right? like not held to it in the, I don't mean it like forced to it, but, or handcuffed, but, um, but, you know, you're always there, you know, those moments that you did sing about, you're still like, that doesn't happen in the other ones to kind of have to. Yeah. I
1: mean, no one, no one is, yeah, no one's holding Paul Oster to like, you know, something he wrote in a novel in like 1978 or whatever, you know, it's like, it's not, it's not, it's not how it works, but that's also kind of the beauty of the connection that we have as songwriters, uh, with our audiences it's it's that you know you're the best compliment i can get and thankfully i i i I received it from uh somebody recently i was talking to was like yeah i feel like i've been able to grow older with your records i've been listening to your records for x amount of years and i feel like you know that the way that i've been writing about my life and the things that i've chosen to write about are that at least some of them are relatable to people who are my age and have been listening to the music all these years which that's the goal you know the the goal you know it would be pretty pathetic if i was here at 46 like you know writing a song about the cops stealing my skateboard you know i mean it's like you know or it's like so you know it's like and that that was the that was the height of emotional kind of growth that i had kind of experienced the last 20 years so that means a lot to me and that's that's the goal is like i remember at some point we were listening to playback in the studio. And, and I said something like, uh, yeah, boy, people are going to be really, people are going to love this song about a middle-aged white man and his, and his anxiety. This is really, this is going to be a big hit. You know?
0: <laughs> well, I guess I appreciate in the same way that even a record like give up, which I see as a very lonely album, uh, even in its peppiness, you know, that, that version of loneliness has at certain times been as much comfort as anything else uh, in those moments in Asphalt Meadows, I get the same way, you know, it, it is a, a more matured loneliness sometimes or, or whatever, you know, the, the, the emotion is, but, um, uh, but I can honestly say that, uh, that, yeah, you have been great about that in your songwriting.
1: Well, I appreciate you saying that. I feel like I led you to that compliment, but, uh, but I, but I do feel like, yeah, I mean, yeah, it's like, I, I, I would hope that if somebody loved transatlanticism when they were a teenager, because it spoke to, uh, what they were going through then that now 20 years later that something that i would write not not necessarily even for death Cab, but just in general would find a pl- a place in their life if, and, and their existence that they could relate to it so that's that's the goal the goal is to be as honest as possible and um i i just i think that's probably one of the reasons that people have you know followed this band as long as they have I, it's it's I've said, I've said often it's, 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 it's easy to be detached and ironic. Uh, it's, it's, it's far more difficult, far more dangerous to be earnest. And, uh, you, you open yourself to a lot more, a lot more, uh, mockery for being earnest than you do for being ironically detached.
0: Well, I can, I can say too, that, um, when I make a joke about, this is the sound of settling after getting home at 10 o'clock. Uh, it's no longer a resignation; it's a celebration. So that's
1: yeah, yeah, exactly. <laughs> like the idea of like going to a show and be like, "Oh, thank Christ!" It's like the show starts at eight. <laughs> you know, <laughs> I was I was having a conversation with a friend of mine uh, who writes for a local weekly about the state of Seattle music, um, and you know, it's it's, it's it, everybody's on tour. Clubs are you know booked all these nights a week. Blah blah blah. Um, and I was like, I just don't know why shows can't start at eight and be over by 10 on a weekday what, what what is this what is this myth that people need to be out later to drink more like if you can afford to go to a show in seattle in 2022 you probably have a job that you have to go to in the morning right uh but you know and i i i, I stand by that statement um but it is the oldest thing i've said in quite a quite a while and also the only way i can make it sound older is if i asked that if I demand that there also be a seat. <laughs> like I must have a seat. I've been standing for three hours.
0: <laughs> and here, you're gonna go on tour and, and what time
1: will death Cab go on? Nine, nine fifteen? Uh we're we're gonna we're gonna punish people. We're gonna go on at eleven. Shows over at <laughs> shows over at 1.30 in the morning. Uh no I think it I think uh I think we'll probably we'll we'll get you out of there before we'll get you out of there we won't be getting out too late.
0: I just want to be lost in the music, man. It's uh <laughs> Throw a peace sign up when I do that. Yeah, exactly. Uh <laughs> Asphalt Meadows is so good. Uh Ben, it is always so exciting when you release new music. So thanks for continuing to do it. Man, thanks for taking the time to talk about it today.
1: Of course, yeah, it's my pleasure.
0: My thanks to Ben Gibber, Deathcap for Cutie. The new album is called Asphalt Meadows, and of course the reunion shows with the Postal Service. And uh, and celebration of Death Cab's transatlanticism happening later on in 2023. Uh, you can also head further into this Kyle Meredith with podcast to hear my uh, 2018 interview uh, with Ben. That's when we were talking about their record. Thank you for today and his friendship with uh, Frightened Rabbit's Scott Hutchinson. So that's uh, if you if you want to find that one, just search in the Kyle Meredith with podcast. Kyle Meredith with Death Cab for Cutie. Thanks to you for checking out this episode. Before you get out, please do hit that subscribe button so you can keep up with all the interviews that I put out every single week, new and every Monday, Wednesday, and Friday at iTunes and Apple Podcasts, at Spotify and Podchaser, NPR, WFPK.org, YouTube for the video versions, or again, anywhere you get your podcasts from, subscribe to Kyle Meredith with. Then after that, head over to WFPK.org. That's where I do a show, Monday through Friday, starts at 6 p.m. Eastern, song premieres music news anniversary spins bonus interviews monday through friday 6 p.m eastern at wfpk.org consequence has your music and film news you can also find me on the social media spots twitter facebook instagram all three of them the address is at kyle meredith so I do hope you like and follow along and that does it for another edition i'm kyle meredith i'll see you next time Consequence Podcast Network.
1: That was fun. I guess we'll see you in about a month or something like that, right? Have a great weekend. I'll talk to you soon.
0: It's easy to hear your favorite artist on WFPK from wherever you are. Listen on your smart speaker, live stream from our website at WFPK.org, from Louisville Public Media.